Welcome to T21 Mom. Hi, friends, and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. This is Mary, and I'm mom to Ainsley, who is 10 years old, soon to be 11, and she has Down syndrome and also the dual diagnosis of autism. And this is episode 110. Now, regardless of how old your child is, do you think about or maybe even worry about the future for when they are out of school? Do you even know what's involved with the whole transition? Now, on today's episode, I talk with Patrick Cadigan and Megan Smallwood of the Post-Secondary Transition Podcast, and their podcast is all about literally that, the post-secondary transition. And it is a bit of a longer episode today, but it is full of lots of great info. So you might want to grab a pen and let's go have a listen. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I have two guests, Patrick Cadigan and Megan Smallwood, hosts of the Post-Secondary Transition podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Hello, hello. You're very welcome. I'm quite excited to chat with you both today about such an important topic for parents. But first, can you tell me a little bit about you and your backgrounds and what compelled you to start your podcast? Sure. Do you want me to go first, Patrick? Yep. Okay. (laughs) Well, I am actually originally from New York and I grew up with an older sister who has an intellectual disability. So, you know, the world of special ed was always around me. Which is, you know, second nature. So, of course, I went to college to become a special ed teacher. And I was a life skills teacher in our county for about 12 years. But I had gone back for my master's and took a course in transition, in all things transition. And I realized that was my true passion. And seeing what my sister went through, my mom went through, you know, as she was getting ready to exit back, you know, when she was 21, I realized how much I wanted to help families like that. So, I jumped into the transition world in our county, and I've been there seven years now. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, and I love it. I love working with the families and the students and, you know, just being that shoulder for them to to cry on when it gets tough and <laughs> to depend on for the information. So, yeah, it, it's a great, it, great job. Awesome. And what and about you, Patrick? For, yeah, so for me, I've bounced around quite a bit. I was actually an actor in the early 2000s in and around the Washington, D.C. area. and then... I love your background story, Patrick. It's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I love talking about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but I did that. I, so I, I, I focused primarily in theater. And then my best friend owns his own construction site safety firm. So one day he calls me up on the phone and he says, you know, I just lost somebody in my office. Can you come and you help me out? And I ended up staying there for doing that for like seven years and just kind of moved up in the company as I was going. But there was always that thing in the back of my head that was like, you know, I've always really enjoyed working with kids. And so a long conversation with my wife, if I was going to do that, then I needed a college degree. So I went and I did that. And so I got my undergrad from Towson University and then ended up going back a few years later for my master's. While I was there, I so majored in special education, but with a focus in autism studies. Mm-hmm. And, and that actually was where Megan and I kind of hooked up because in my third year, we did a transition class with a gentleman, Doug DeHaan, who now runs the Huskin Center 
for autism at Towson University. He's a brilliant guy, really, really. He's probably too brilliant. He's a little intimidating. But so one of the, the final project for that, he's, you know, he was like, you guys get to choose what you're going to do. So I asked if I could do an interview and he agreed. And so I had remembered Megan because Megan and I kind of sort of came from the same school. Like we were, uh, we were kind of transitioning. Like I was going out and she was coming in. We had a uh, couple years together, I think there. Did I always, I always get confused about that, but yeah, maybe we did. And, but I rung her and I said, can you do this interview with me? And she was like, sure. And by the time we were done, she mentioned, you know, this is something that I've always thought about doing with my families because I, I really would like them to be able to tell their stories. And I was like, hey, that's a podcast. And I Light bulb. do that. And that's, and how, then, that's how the podcast came to be. And that, yeah, I think we did, we did research. We did research for about a year. I'm the tech guy. So I like to do all that kind of nerdy stuff. To... Majorly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like what research podcasting, research the topic, tried to find other sources. And to my astonishment, found that not that there was nothing, but there was very little. And what was there was usually what I would refer to as fits and starts, right? Mm -hmm. Like they, they would have a couple of episodes yeah. and it would just kind of drop off. And so I got really excited and I called Megan and I said, I think we can do this. And she was like, I, I agree. So <laughs> meanwhile, in that year that he was researching, he was busy building our website as well. So that kept him busy on the other side. Oh, no, no. Wait, let's be real, real clear <laughs> about this. Megan... Okay, so I will always throw out there that Megan is the brain trust of this partnership, right? Like one of the things that I've always found fascinating about Megan and her story is, is that transition is in her DNA, right? Because of the, mm -hmm. the experiences that she had with her sister. I am very much interested in the tech side of things and taking a lot of information and trying to make it understandable to help people like that's where my passion comes in. Mm -hmm. So as far as the website is concerned, Megan had already done something and done it really well. And I just looked at it and was like, oh, I can make that, you know, a little flashier. But don't let her fool you. All of the information that's out there is hers. She's the one who did the PowerPoints. She was the one that did the information. She's like just this, this vast trove of information that she had built, collected, and, and then was absolutely willing to share with anyone and everyone. And I just always thought that that was really cool. So it was a good, it was a good connection. Fantastic. Now, your podcast is about the whole post-secondary transition for people with disabilities or special needs. Obviously, my podcast is about people with Down syndrome, but it, obviously it, it applies because I think one of the scariest and unnerving times that us special needs parents go through is wondering what happens after high school ends. You know, I hear about this all the time. I'm Ainsley's only 10, so I, I have a few years, but we got to get to high school first. That's, that's what's on my mind. But, you know, I often hear parents liken it to essentially just jumping off a cliff, you know, with probably not a parachute. But, yeah. You know, so I think, I mean, you guys are the experts, but I think so many things need to be in place before you jump off that precipice. Like first, 
in the States, because I think it's quite different than in Canada, what age can kids go to school till? And it differs from state to state. Typically, it's 21. But okay. there are a few states, and I forget which one exactly. I want to say Minnesota, Montana, they can go to 26, because I know there's a running joke in a lot of our IEP meetings that we're just going to pick up and move to the Midwest so we get a few extra years in. But wow. it's, it's yeah, it's typically 21. Okay. Because, yeah, in Canada, it's only 19. And wow. barely at that. I just discovered, because I just did one with Dorothy about the transition of her daughter, and her daughter, her birthday, I think, is in January. So she can only, she only gets that one extra year. But my daughter Ainsley, her birthday's in November. So she actually gets an additional extra year because she's in the latter half of the year, which I did not know about. So I thought, okay, we kind of get two extra years. Whereas most, if you're in the first half of the year, parents only get one extra year. So we've had situations like that where if it, it depends on when the school year starts. Mm -hmm. So let's say last year, I actually had a student whose birthday was on the first day of school. He turned 21. He got that full extra year to oh, go. Good. If oh, his birthday great. had been the week before it started, he wouldn't have got it. Okay. So. Yeah, kind of sort of similar. And I know in the States, the school start times is all over the place. For yep, us, it's yep. pretty much Labor Day after Labor Day. So, so. You know, I've been listening to your podcast. I, I think it's really informative, but there's just so much to know. I was just talking to Patrick before we started, but like, where do parents start? Because it's kind of daunting. Yeah. And I think you brought up a good point. You're worried about high school right now for your, mm -hmm. your child. Like, that's what we face a lot of, you know, when we try to get the conversation starting earlier than later. A lot of parents aren't necessarily ready for it. And I know Patrick mm -hmm. feels this in the middle school. You know, they just, they, they don't really want to think about it yet. They've got plenty of time. But then before you know it, you know, it's, it's almost 21. We've got to get moving. But, mm -hmm. you know, in Maryland, we're, you know, our transition begins. The conversation is supposed to begin around 14. And it's just, you know, a matter of starting the research process. You know, thinking about what would, and I'm going to probably say this a lot tonight, you know, a meaningful day be for your child after they leave school. Mm -hmm. And it's so different for everybody. And I think, you know, I work with a lot of parents who are still accepting that it's going to be different. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not going to be the cookie cutter. We're graduating. We're going to go to college. We're going to get a job. We're going to live on our own. Like it's going to be whatever works best for your child and your family and just kind of learning what that's going to be. <laughs> One thing that, that I will throw out there that I do feel like that our, specifically our county does fairly well is the reason what, that it starts at age 14 is to spread out the expectation uh, over, over that time frame. So as a middle school, a special educator, I am usually that person that starts that discussion. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it is having an interview with the student and talking with them about you know what their interests are with a full understanding and recognition that you know, the likelihood that what like let's say if i sat down and talked with ainsley right like what she would communicate to me is her interest at you know age 14 may not necessarily be the same interest that she has you know at 19 or 20 or 21 you mm -hmm. know somewhere down the line but at the very least it gets the conversation going Yes. And because that's a long road, seven years, essentially. Yeah. But 
I think, you know, small steps. So it's not so overwhelming, you know, when your child is hitting, you know, getting close, like 19, 20. Because I have heard of stories where parents, I think it's in their final year and they haven't really thought beyond too much because I, I, it's scary. But then you're kind of left scrambling a little bit. And, I'm, and I always thought and when Ainsley was little, I go, all that has to have been in place like years prior, you know, what, you know, I guess kind of what avenue, but like you said, Patrick, I don't think anyone knows at 14 really what they want to do once they're out of school, right? So especially, you know, maybe our kids, I think their interests are going to vary just like any yeah. child. So that yeah, could be. And I like to tell kids that when we meet, like, I don't expect you to tell me right now what <laughs> you're going to be when you grow up and stick to it. You know, it's going to change, but it's kind of cool to go back by senior year you know, to see what you said freshman year, sophomore year, like just compare, see how you've grown. Oh yeah. 100%. Yeah. I feel like it's probably never too late to start, but obviously I would think earlier is better. Like you said, by age 14. So you kind of touched on it, Patrick and, and Megan, do you have to know or have an idea of what path your child is going to take such as getting a job doing post-secondary education going to a day program I don't know if it's called this here but I know in the U.S. or at least where you guys are is that there's a certificate track and the diploma track so do you right. kind of have to know by age 14 like what track you think your child's going to go down not necessarily and we just had this conversation on one of our past, you know, podcasts about having those tough conversations. And I think a lot of times, maybe in the back of their mind, parents know what ultimately might be the path, but they're still trying for a different path. But you're never tied to it, you know, at a certain age. You can always talk to the team, talk to your, you know, your child, your family, decide what works best. I think it's just an ever, ever changing thing. You know, you just it's going to it's going to take time to perfect it and figure out what the best plan will be but mm -hmm. i think just you know having those conversations and including everyone that knows your child to kind of get that picture you know that well-rounded picture of what a meaningful life would be for them would help mm -hmm. and i do think it's also a, a very important point to make the distinction that uh there are different paths for so when we place when we talk about being certificate track, that means a student who is not planning on graduating with a high school diploma versus the diploma track in which they will. Mm -hmm. And those paths can then, you know, split and, you know, the expectations then become differently. And kind of to Megan's point that like in one of our most recent discussions, we had said that, you know, that's when you have to start having maybe some of those uh, you know, some of those much harder conversations mm -hmm. because, you know, as parents, you know, we want the most and the best for our kids, but sometimes our kids have different ideas and, and we have to listen to those voices. And I think one thing I've seen over the years is, you know, when a parent, you know, is still kind of tied to the idea of my child really could get this diploma. And, you know, they're pushing, they have high expectations, which is great, but then seeing the child in the school mm -hmm. and they're not truly enjoying their experience because mm -hmm. they're in these classes that are not a great fit mm -hmm. and they have stressors on them because they're trying so hard to perform. It just, you know, 
those are the conversations I think when we meet with the parent and the team that it is difficult to have, but like to let the parent know this is what we're seeing and, you know, there might be a better path for your child, you know, so just to consider all options. And, and, and again, kind of playing off of that, it, it also makes it tough because one of the things when Megan and I first started out like doing this was we had that conversation of, do we focus on non-diploma bound? Do we focus on diploma bound? Like, how do we, how do we, like, how do we push that information out there? And we both, given our backgrounds, we both kind of agreed that primarily uh, a lot of our discussions are for the non-diploma bound students or for the students with the most significant needs, because Mm -hmm. that really is where our passions are. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I have had, and or, and we, I shouldn't say I, we have had conversations with people who have brought up very, very good points about the, the, even if you're diploma bound, these, you know, these are kids with disabilities and they're struggling too, and they need resources as well. And so it, it really has, it's been a push and a pull. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of what you were saying, Megan, sometimes it's always a good fit. Like I know here and elsewhere i mean a little off topic is the parents really push for inclusive education and i'm all for inclusive education but sometimes your child is not always going to do the best in a gen ed classroom and you know they might do better in a, a special ed classroom i totally understand that i never thought that when ainsley was young but as she gets older i can see why it's, it could be a real struggle. So, and, and I get it. Like some parents, they really hope that their child will get that diploma. But, you know, I think for a lot of us in, in my community, that's probably not a genuine reality that they're going to get a high school diploma. They can get, I think here they call it a dogwood. I think it's called a dogwood diploma, is I think is what it's called. But, you know, and it's hard. It's hard on the parents' hearts, right? I totally get it, what that's like. So, where do parents start? I know, for example, here, my friend Dorothy was talking about, like, get them, you know, ID at a, a certain age and get them their SIN number, which is equivalent to your uh, social security card, mm-hmm. I guess. Like, what are some of the things that parents need to do to get started on this road so that they have success at the end? I know for our state and every state has one, but we have state funding, which you probably heard DDA. Mm-hmm. which is Developmental Disabilities Administration. That's like the long-term state funding after 21 that will, you know, provide the the supports for any kind of meaningful day, whatever it is. Um, that's one thing to put in place, you know, and, and parents say, well, it's, it's a waiting list. It says I don't get anything now. And we recognize that, but they need to know, you know, how many by the time your child is 21 that they're going to be funding for. So, you know, it's kind of like step one, for mm-hmm. us with transition at 14, like you complete that application, you know, check that off and then let's just continue on with our researching. But similar to what you said, like I know around 18 is when we typically tell families, you know, start thinking about, you know, getting an ID, a state ID mm-hmm. so that they have that to carry with them. And then they have, they're eligible for supplemental security income or SSI, mm-hmm. like a monthly amount, you know, so there's other things that get put in place, you know, and I think I usually tell parents between 14 and 17, you kind of, you know, it's kind of laying low. You're just gathering the information. And then as soon as 18 hits, we're like, you know, speeding off towards 21. And that's when a lot of things start 
you know, flying by. So it, it, it's good to take your time. Like Patrick said, you know, it's, it's chip away at a little by little and gather that information. There, uh, one thing that I could throw out there on our, so uh, website plug, www.postsecondarytransition.com. When you hit that website up in, so it's like a, like a tabbed experience. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the first tab and click on start here, so it'll take you to a page that will say, like, if you are a certificate track freshman, these are the things that, you know, you might want to have kind of like where Megan was throwing it out there, like applying for the state ID, applying for doors, DDA, creating an at home file. But the point is, is that that was something that came up. That was, again, one of those resources that Megan had put together. And actually, now that I think about it, it was also another transition coordinator that we had worked with. Her name's Erin. It was part of her, if I remember correctly, it was part of her master's program final project. And she kind of pulled all of this stuff and, and it was like, hey, this is a really good idea. And so like, it kind of tracks, like if you're a freshman, this is what you can start to do. And then if you're a sophomore, this mm -hmm. is what you can do. And then if you're a junior and a senior, so it kind of, it's kind of like walking you through the process. There's lots and lots of stuff in between. Like Megan was saying, there's going to be mm -hmm. some downtime and stuff, but if, if you are completely without resources or like just blank on where, just where to start, that might be a good place to look. Okay. Yeah. And I think the thing that I hated was hearing parents approach 21 from my school, from anywhere in the county and say, well, I, I've never gotten this information. I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I was just, I just want to make sure everyone's as informed as possible. And, you know, I know parents that'll call me and say, okay, what should I be doing now? What should I be doing now? Like, you yeah. know, checking in, like they've missed something. And, you know, I just wanted to make sure that they had a place to go to, to take their time and they were ready to get the information they needed. And so is the DDA, is that a federal program? It's a state program, but every state has their version of DDA. Okay. And that's a question, you know, as I meet with families that they'll say, oh, well, when we move, when we retire, we'll just go to California and get DDA, right? And I'm like, no, no, it's kind of like starting over. Unfortunately, you're going to have to do the whole application process there, get on a waiting list. Most of them have waiting lists. Mm -hmm. um, I Googled it once just out of curiosity, and there's, in our state, transitioning youth at 21, they get first priority for funding, so they're kind of guaranteed the money. After that, let's say, for example, my sister, she's in New York. If I wanted her to move to Maryland, and she's 43 right now, mm -hmm. she'd be put on a waiting list. Right. And there's no guarantee for money, you know, for a few years, if that. And. And yeah. playing off of that, uh, some of the parent interviews that we've done, I remember in one of our episodes, one of our earliest episodes, we had talked with a family. They started out in California and mm -hmm. then they came out to uh, Maryland. And again, just a very, very different experience, very different set of expectations. And it took a while to adjust. And that goes for families in the military, too. We've had a couple families oh. who, you know, they have to move around. Yeah. So they were trying to predict where they might be when their daughter's 21. So it's, it's not an easy process and it, it's frustrating, you know, when you're trying to plan for the future and you're kind of, I know families have said, I feel like I'm stuck here. But... I never thought about that for the military families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of like, that would be really challenging. Oh gosh. Yeah. And I know you've talked about like 
like you're a transition coordinator. I don't even know if we have that here, which I it sounds fantastic. I know we have transition fairs. I actually just learned about that. So I'm, I want to start going to them because, you know, just to sort of see what's out there and kind of what, you know, is coming down the road. Uh, you know, so are you like kind of like assigned to somebody? Like, how do they get you? Like, how do they get a transition coordinator? Does it happen automatically? Do they have to call up or is it similar to a social worker? I'm not really sure. So it's handled differently in in every county in our state. For our county, every high school is assigned a transition coordinator. And then every student with an IEP mm -hmm. in the school, I work with, at, you know, to update like their pages on the IEP, but I'm also available as a resource for them and the families. And for those, like we talked about going on the diploma track, it's not as intensive because they have the support of their case manager, their special educators. You know, it might just be a few meetings here and there. But for those families that are on the certificate track, I definitely work more closely and directly with them, you know, over those seven years they're in high school mm -hmm. and preparing for exit. So I know, yeah, like for our county, it's one per school. Mm -hmm. But I know other counties in our state, there might be like a couple coordinators for the whole county. And so you're not working as directly. A lot of it falls more on the case manager or the special educator in the school. And they're just more of an indirect resource. So it, it definitely is handled differently. I recently, over the summer, we had uh, taken, uh, my wife, my family and I, we had taken a trip down to Florida. And while I was there, I just was curious. And I started to do my own research about transition and what it looked like there. Now, granted, I only was doing it for like a couple of hours. But it seemed to me that the way that they handled transition there was through a lot of informational resource pages, like, you know, so essentially websites. Mm. And I never did, I, I don't get the impression that they supported the idea of like a transition coordinator. I could be wrong, but, mm -hmm. but yeah, to Megan's point, I mean, wow, it's, it's very, it can be very different depending on where you are. No parent wants to be told to go check out a website. Exactly. For such a major, milestone right you know well, and and that was that really was the kind of the the jumping off point when megan said you know this is why i want to do this and uh, that was the first thing that she brought up was she's like i want families to have something you know something to listen to something to hear you know and to let them know that they're not they're not alone and i think the other thing is even though in our county every high school has a transition coordinator there are inconsistencies amongst the coordinators. You know, not everyone is going out and doing as much as, you know, I'm doing or another one's doing, you know. It, so mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that the information was there for all. Of course, you know, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I started my podcast is so that people could have a place, you know, to find information and, you know, to bring experts on like yourselves, you know, to talk about different things that, you know, our child needs because like telling to them to go to a website is, is not good. I remember when Ainsley got her autism diagnosis, the whole experience was horrible, how it was delivered. And they handed me a book and told me, I think, look at that tab and call that number. That's what I was told. I don't remember really anything that they told me after they said, oh yes, she has autism. <laughs> Nobody remembers anything. So you know, I think it's fantastic that, you know, schools have a transition coordinator like yourself because you're the expert. I am always like I remember when Ainsley was in uh, 
early intervention, we had a fabulous support person and I went to her for everything because she knew everybody. She knew exactly what to do. She got us into daycare, et cetera. You know, so I think everyone needs like those key people to direct and them. That's why I like my role because you build that like relationship and that level of trust with the families. And so I will get questions about things that may not be transition related, but they feel comfortable enough to come to me. They know I'm a support person and I'm helpful, you know, able to direct them to where they might need to go. So I just love being able to to build that bond with people. Mm -hmm. And then, Mary, if I could segue into something, because I want something that you said sparked a memory in me you, using using the word book. I, one of my absolute favorite episodes of yours was when you brought on. And the name is totally escaping me right now, but she was the author. She was looking for books that represented her and her son. Oh, um, Mika Caldwell. Yeah. Her, yes. She does the, she has a little series, My Son and I. And yeah. yeah. And yeah. I just, so again, representation. And I just, I, I, I flipped out when I heard that. And I ended up uh, calling up well, one of the moms of a student that I used to work with. Because that was something that she advocated for her son. His name is Lucas. He was one of my students for about three years. And I was just so excited to share that with her. And, and she really appreciated it. I just, I just thought it was cool. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That, <laughs> I, that, that episode uh, moved molecules for me. Oh, that's wonderful. I'll, I'll be sure to let her know that. That's awesome. Wow. So... Patrick, I know you mentioned you can go to your website and certainly we'll put links in the show notes. But is there kind of like, I think the whole transition process can be complex. It's kind of like seven years for you guys. But is there, is this where they need to, people need to, parents need to go, go to your website and where it says start here? Like, is that, is that going to tell parents what they need to do and kind of when? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to defer this one to Megan, but I kind of know what she's going to say. Go find people around you, go to Facebook, find Facebook groups. Uh, we belong to several Facebook groups. They're amazing because they are parents helping other parents. Mm -hmm. They're throwing stuff out there. Megan, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, I was going to say that there's such a big support and I know there's been some great collaborations that have come out of these social networkings from the parents, including agencies, adult agencies in our area that formed over COVID because the parents got together and said, this is not what we want. We want something different. And now we have these great programs. So yeah, other parents are just such a huge resource. I think our website's a great starting point though. Mm -hmm. I think it gives a very good overview of, you know, all things transition and really gets you thinking about, um, okay, well, this, this might be coming down the road soon for me. Maybe I need to consider this or what would this mean for my child? So I think it's a good way to start the process of, you know, what's to come. Okay, that's great because I think, you know, yes, parents are told to go to a website, but if you're told like you can start here, mm -hmm. I think for a lot of parents, because they kind of need, <clears throat> need some guidance, I think often just where they need to start. And then, like you said, connect with other parents. And yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. Like, just through social media, trying to find other groups. Like, I mean, I have all my little Down syndrome groups, but yeah, we have a wonderful resource here called the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. They're fantastic. So I would certainly use them, but lots of people don't have that. You know, they, you know, thank goodness for social media these days because 
you could be anywhere and you can access this information. You don't have to be in one location. So, which is fantastic. Now, sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Well, no, I was just going to say that, and that was a part of the conversation that Megan and I had recently, because uh, in one of our conversations that we had posted up, I came out, like, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but one of the th reasons that I'm still around is because of those parent groups and because uh, you can watch in real time people supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the ideal. And so... You know, I don't, I don't post a whole lot on Facebook, but I do, I am constantly going to those, those groups. And uh, we, in fact, just recently we had a conversation. One of the reasons that we had the conversation that we did was because there was a lot of discussion in one of the groups that we belong to. There was a lot of frustration around um, a, a payee system that um, had seen some sweeping changes. And so there was a lot of frustration around that. So Megan and I reached out to somebody that we knew that knew a little bit about it and she came on and she talked with us. So, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Cause I do feel like parents are often the best sources of information and, and guidance because, you know, I'm always looking at the parents who are ahead of me because they've, they're, they've gone down the road before me and I always look for them for guidance. And, and I want to be that for the parents who are behind me because can be really hard. I mean, just being in school is hard for a lot of our kids and the families and, you know, just the amount of advocacy that you have to do. And, you know, and for some parents, you know, they're just trying to survive getting through high school. And mm -hmm. then they got this whole other process that they got to deal with. And, you know, and parents, you know, at that point, like, as Dorothy had mentioned when she came on and we were talking about transition, is that a lot of parents just are so exhausted at that point that they just don't have it in them to be advocating it as much anymore or at all. And also, they're that many years older than yeah. they were when they first entered the school system. And, you know, so what do you suggest for parents, I guess, kind of when they're kind of going down that road, you know, they... It, it is exhausting. This is like a lifetime journey with our kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, that can be really daunting when you're thinking about that. I mean, I, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's just trying to get to the next milestone, not thinking necessarily 20 years down the road. But, okay. you know, I don't know. Is there words of wisdom? <laughs> yeah, I think you're, you, you hit the nail on the head. It is an exhausting process. And I think part of, the reason why I like want to do so much is because I want to take that burden off of parents while I can, because I know at 21, they're going to leave us and it's mm -hmm. going to be them. So it's a fine line because it's like you want to help them as much as you can, but you also want them to understand all the information because as one of another, another parent that I used to work with had said at one of our parent panels and it stuck with me forever, you as a parent are the constant for your child. You know, all these people come in to help, but they're going to go away and you're going to be the remaining person. So you need to continue to be that advocate. You need to know who's responsible for what and how all the pieces fall together. And just remember, like you, you were the the holder of all the information and all well, that's a big task to to have. Like it, it's just it's something that you have to accept. 
But at the same time, while you have all those resources, use them, ask the questions. Don't be afraid to ask them a million times over and over, yeah. you know, until you fully understand it. Because I always forget, you know, I'll, I'll mention DDA and CFC and all these acronyms because I live it day <laughs> in and day out. Yeah. And I'll, I'll have a parent looking at me and I'm like, I need to slow down, don't I? Like, I need to explain <laughs> what that is because mm -hmm. it's it's a lot. So until, you know, and I have a parent who English is their second language mm -hmm. and she's requested that we meet, you know, monthly and she'll wow. come with her book and, and she's taken it upon herself. She's Burmese, the Burmese community that also has, you know, other children with disabilities she wants to understand all this so she can be the advocate to help them understand it so you know it's multiple layers but she's coming in with her book and writing it down and we go over it and she asks questions so I love that and I'm willing to sit there and go over it over and over for her because I want her to feel confident when she leaves uh -huh. so that's what I think it's just it's exhausting but it's it's just something that, you know, you just keep on trucking, just like you do with everything else. Mm -hmm. so. And how does it work in the U.S.? Uh, like here, uh, technically, you become an adult at 19. I, mm -hmm. I think in the States, it might be considered 21. 18. Oh, 18. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because yeah. 19 is sort of the golden year here, like is when you can drink oh, legally. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's 18 for us. Oh, no, sorry. Drinking is 21. 21. 18 is adult for us. Oh, interesting. The golden opportunity, I guess, is voting. So at 18, yes, yes, yes. voting. Voting. But then, yeah, you can't drink until you're 21. So. Right. But I think yeah. the, the scariest thing for parents is the healthcare aspect because at 18, doctors are telling them they're technically an adult, that mm -hmm. you don't have any rights anymore. And that makes a lot of parents nervous and what do you mean? I'm that's my child. Like, mm -hmm. how can they be 17 today and 18 tomorrow? And suddenly I have no rights. Um, and that's when the conversation about like guardianship comes up with a lot of parents. Um, but, you know, again, I tell parents just, you know, let's go through the information together. You know, they can't tell you not to go in with them. There's a simple HIPAA form you can sign. Anyone can go in if they want you there. You know, it just mm -hmm. it just becomes very real because suddenly they're an adult. Yeah. And I think here it's a representation agreement that you need to have signed on the 19th birthday so that you could, you know, still make those medical choices for your child. Mm -hmm. if, you know, if you feel that they're not able to make those choices. Right. So, okay. yeah. And and one other thing, though, and playing off it, because, uh, of course, you know, we're talking about how, you know, other parents um, are obviously a fantastic resource. I will say, though, that there are times when, because, you know, one parent's experience could be wildly different than another one. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, again, one of the things that we always kind of go back to is, is that it, it is truly going to be uh, an individualized experience. And so you might have a really good experience with, you know, situation A and then have a really bad experience with situation B. And then a, another parent will come along and it'll be the exact opposite. So yeah. it's just. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I always tell parents to talk to other parents, but also take what they say with a grain of salt and make your own decision. And I know a lot of times I have families that come in that are, are very overwhelmed because they mm -hmm. hear 21, like you said, it's falling off a cliff. It's just, you know, horrible compared to what it was. And they have all these stories of, you know, things that have happened. And I'm like, okay, let's take a step back. 
we're gonna we're just gonna focus on your child you're right it's it 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 can be a daunting daunting thing yes and patrick you sort of touched on it about like and megan about guardianship so I mean, healthcare is very different in the U.S. than it is here in Canada. I mean, we have universal healthcare. Uh, but what happens when your child turns 18? Mm-hmm. Like here, I think Ainsley could still be on my benefits. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty sure that is the case. But what happens when they're 18 or 21 in the, in yeah. the U.S. for their healthcare? They can still be on the medical benefits of their parent, um, but we have medical assistance or Medicaid. And in order to access the DDA funding in Maryland, they have to be found eligible for medical assistance because DDA is a Medicaid waiver. Um, So even though they are eligible, they don't have to use it. It can be a secondary insurance. So they can still remain on their parents. Okay. But they have to be, they have to have it. And they can be found eligible after find it being found eligible for SSI. Okay. So it's like a chain of events at 18. All right, Megan, I'm going to give you a hard time. Acronym vomit. What's so, SSI? <laughs> um, Supplemental Security Income SSI, which I think you had said was similar to the Yeah, people, uh, person with a disability. Disability. Yeah, Yeah. which is what we have here when they're 19. So it's like a government income, I guess, for lack of a better word. Same. Ours is SSI, Supplemental Security Income. And this year it went up to $914 a month for an individual. Yeah. I can't recall but i think it's a little bit more here but it increased you know, never... every year for us which is is nice but oh that's good but mm-hmm. it's yeah and they can also but they can they they can still earn money but up to a certain point can they not correct yes they can still work and um we actually have benefits counselors available that can you know work with a family or an individual to make it you know, happen so that their SSI is not impacted by how much they're making. Um, but there are still certain stipulations, like for example, if you're receiving SSI, you cannot an individual cannot have more than two thousand dollars in an account with their name on it. So then there's you know special needs trusts and something called an able account, which mm-hmm. a lot of states have. So yeah, all so- the information that we start researching <laughs> early on. Yeah, so I know there's. It sounds so complicated. So I, I know, right? I, but I think if you start early, you know, just one step at a time, that it's not so overwhelming for parents because yeah. it's just it's scary for everyone. And then you know, and then when you hit twenty one, like that's a whole new, that's a whole other ball game. Once that's all, once you've transitioned, you know, and I. I'm really hoping we have transition coordinators here. I don't know, but I'm going to be fine. <laughs> if not, start advocating. <laughs> 100% because I think we all need that because yeah. if you're not living in this world, you have no idea what parents have to go through, the amount of paperwork we have to fill out, the amount of forms, you know, things we have to sign, whatever. I mean, I'm always forgetting something because I go, yeah. there's just so many things to on top of that something's going to fall through the cracks. So, you know, we definitely need people like you both to help 
guide us because it's yeah. it's just such a a crazy time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know, we're a huge resource, you know, and I love when parents come looking for help because that's, I'm like, I'm here. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to help. One thing that I will throw out there, and we had had a conversation about this, not recently, but we did, we did a discussion around guardianship. Guardianship is a tricky uh, subject to mm -hmm. talk about. Yeah. But one of the things that Megan was always quick to throw out there is that there are also alternatives and there are yeah. alternatives that are very supportive. So don't like, don't not think about those, like mm -hmm. really strongly consider those alternatives. And I mean, if guardianship is ultimately what you decide on, then of course that's your choice and you know, you're going to do what you need to do, but there are alternatives. And so just consider those as well. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because you know, guardianship is just one of the tools in the toolbox and you know, it's also the most restrictive tool. So I think a lot of parents hear from other parents, you know, you need to get mm -hmm. guardianship now. And they're like, oh my God, okay, let me go get an attorney. But it's true, yeah. you know, you need to to do all the research and see what other alternatives there are. There might be something as simple as signing a piece of paper and having it notarized that that's all you really need. I know a lot of families, the, the two main items are the medical piece mm -hmm. and the financial piece. Yes. And that's really what it comes down to. And I know in our state, you know, there are alternatives that will take care of that without jumping to guardianship. So. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, I know we've talked, like kind of touched on a lot of different things and obviously people can go to your podcast and get more in-depth information, you know, about, for example, guardianship and mm -hmm. probably about ABLE accounts and, and so yep. forth. And just, I know, and Patrick, you sort of touched on it. I think it was you, Patrick. Like there's just so many steps to take to make this whole transition beyond high school. But how do we involve our kids in helping to make these decisions? Because I think it's their lives and yeah. they should have a say. But sometimes that could be really challenging. One of the things that I'm going to throw out there, uh, this is something that I have thought a lot about this year. One of the first things on the on the list that Megan had created was having your child participate in their individualized education program process, like mm -hmm. going to IEP meetings, starting to listen and understand, you know, like what that is and what it represents and how it works. And I mean, again, there, there are varying levels of that, but understanding like, per, like I, what I should talk about, what I'm thinking about, and Megan, you can jump in and save me when I'm drowning, uh, but person-centered planning, thinking, you know, thinking about what they need, but then, but in order to be able to do that, they need to understand who they are. And, and I, we need to kind of give them the room to have that opportunity. And I think that goes for both sides. Like you thinking of the, the, the students who are receiving a diploma, you know, so many times I see them not even attending the meeting that's about them. And, you know, when I meet with students, I will flat out ask them, do you know what your accommodations are? What are you receiving in class to help you? And a lot of them don't know. They just think, you know, oh, I just get extra time just because or everyone gets copies of notes, you know. So focusing on what knowing their IEP is just so important. And then, you know, on the other side, students who may not be as able to participate in the meeting, we've had students come and prior to the meeting, create like a little slide of pictures of them working or 
you know, a couple sentences of things that they wanted to tell everyone at the meeting so that they had a part about them. Um, and I love, I've had parents who, you know, made it a point to make sure their child was there and brought the child's picture and put the mm -hmm. picture on the table, even if the child had to leave, so that we remembered this is what we are here for. Mm -hmm. This is the conversation, you know, so when people start bickering or and disagree, this is why we're here for her or him. So I think that, yeah, Patrick's right. That's a huge piece of it. But I think also, like I had mentioned before, just considering what's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it might not be the same, you know, meaningful day to me or you, but what is meaningful to them? And that could be something like shredding all day. I have mm -hmm. a student who absolutely mm -hmm. loves to shred. That was meaningful to him. So finding a job where he could do that and he participated in his community by helping them you know, that was that was what he wanted and needed, allowing the student to make choices. You know, it's something as simple as what do you want to eat for breakfast? You know, which shirt do you want to pick today? Like just empowering them that they have a say. So mm -hmm. it's totally possible, even if they're not the most verbal or, you know, cognitively aware. It's just any way that they can have a say in their own life. 100% yes, where they have a say in their own life, right? Because I think sometimes as parents, we just feel like we just speak for our child because we know them. But, <laughs> and, and I know I'm guilty of that 100%. I'm sure all parents are to some degree. And, you know, and, as, and my daughter is somewhat verbal, not hugely, but she can certainly make her needs, wants and needs known. But, you know, but like you said, trying to find those things that are meaningful to them. And when he's talked about the student who liked to shred, I just the other day, someone posted about their child. I can't remember how old they were younger. That's what she does all day is shred paper. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she has Down syndrome and autism, I think is what it was. So it's obviously a sensory thing, but you know, that could be something that she could do when she's older. I never yeah. even thought of that, but you know, that's why we need people like you to help us you know find that path and to help guide us so and that's, that's one of the things when parents are, are exiting and they we have a, two different paths that they can pick you know it's a traditional path like a day program mm -hmm. but there's another path in our, our state where they can kind of individualize the the plan for their child it's called self-direction and a lot of times families might make their own micro business mm -hmm. for the individual based mm -hmm. off of what their interest was. I had another student who loved scanning pictures. So they they made their, his own business cards and he went around and, you know, passed it out to the community and he would scan old pictures for people. Fantastic. And it was a productive business and he had a lot of customers and he was doing something that he loved at his pace and in his schedule. So it's, you know, I love brainstorming with parents of how to make it work. And it's just so exciting. And then the child, the young adult is motivated because it's what they want to do. A lot of times it, they're really, some of those best conversations are the ones who, like out of the box thinking. Megan and I had a conversation with parents, Kurt and Selena. And I, I Mary, I will tell you, being in a room with Megan and Selena is exhausting. <laughs> because they just start coming up with ideas. And again, that out of the box thinking, and well, I remember this student did this and, oh, well, maybe it could go here and do this and do that. And then, you know, and then they, they talk to pay with these ideas that go to the parents and they say, Hey, what did you think about this? And, oh, you know, blah, blah. Oh yeah. There's a lot to it. 
Can I just add one more? I had a student, a nonverbal student. And the mom was just like, she knew she was going to do that, like self-direction because he, you know, with medical reasons, he couldn't get up early. He wanted a day that was just, you know, around his schedule. And she's like, I just don't know what to do with him. This, this student loved pushing a grocery cart. We actually got a grocery cart on the side of the road and had it in the building. And that's how he, he ran his errands around the building. He would push the grocery cart. So I said, you need to go approach the local grocery stores, mm-hmm. the, the ones that he frequents. They know who he is. And ask him if he can just return the grocery carts for them. And she did. And that's one of the things that he does during his week. He'll go with one of his assistants and he brings the grocery carts back. And it's the simplest little, it may seem like the simplest thing to us, but it's so fulfilling for him and he's productive and he loves it. And it's just helping out a local business. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yes, it is just thinking outside the box because you know, sometimes I know myself, I get a little tunnel vision sometimes and you just need someone else to say, Hey, but she's great at this, or Mm -hmm. she seems to really be involved in this. And and I think that's awesome. You know, I think this whole transition, it's can be really scary for parents, but it's nice to know that, you know, there's people like you both out there and that, you know, so if people have questions, where can they find you? Patrick. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. This is you. This is you. I know you love talking about it, though. Our website, you can find us at www.postsecondarytransition.com. Okay. Our contact information is there as well. We always love hearing from people. Um, any ideas for future podcasts, if you'd like to chat with us, any questions, we're always happy to, to talk. Well, I will throw out there that there is a link because... Our podcast, we actually have a second website for the podcast itself. Okay. And that one is p2transition.com. Okay. And so, yeah, that's that's where you can go and you can listen to all the conversations that we've had. We've actually built up quite a nice little library. We're moving into our second yeah. year now. Good and Megan had said recently, she when she went to the site and she looked, she's like, wow, you know, we really talked about a lot of stuff. We talked to a lot of people, didn't we? We did. We had some nice, and and we've got more to come. That's what I'm looking forward to, is we have more to come. Well, that's fantastic. You know, I think for a lot of parents, that can alleviate a lot of the the stress and the anxiety, you know, of what's coming is they can find you. And we'll certainly put links to both of your website and the podcast website on in our show notes. But I just want to thank you both so much for coming on and, you know, if listeners need something a little bit more in depth, because I think we could sort of, I mean, I think we could talk for a few more hours, to be honest, uh, about this whole transition process, because it's it's so involved. But, you know, to go and check out your website, it, it does look fantastic. You did a great job, Patrick. Yeah, he did. <laughs> you know, and also check out their podcast, because there's lots of great info on there. If you need to know about something specific, I'm sure you can find it there. or just contact you guys and maybe you can do yeah. an episode on it. Well, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And I hope that we can chat again soon. Yeah, definitely. I know that was a lot of info to take in and a lot to really think about and maybe even wrap your head around. But here are some of my highlights and I'll keep it brief because I already know it's a bit of a longer episode. But One of the first things is 
you know, that we as parents, you know, we need to really try to find acceptance that it's going to be different. And, you know, there might be some challenges along the way, but it, you know, this is our kid's journey and it's okay that it's, that it's going to be different. And number two, and I hadn't really thought about this, but as Patrick said, join groups, lots of different Facebook groups, you know, find your people, you know, other parents, you know, are such great resources. They may not have a child with Down syndrome, but they may have a lot of that experience that you might need in this whole transition, or maybe they're from your area because things are going to be different depending on where you live. And also number three is, and a lot of today's episode pertains mostly to those in the States, but I think regardless of where you live, you know, you can adapt a lot of the information that was in today's episode, but that, uh, you know, that Patrick and Megan talked about that there are alternatives to guardianship, you know, and didn't realize this and I hadn't really thought about it, that guardianship is actually the most restrictive for our kids. So, you know, if you think there might be opportunity to do something different than guardianship, then, you know, think about that and, and look into that. You know, number four, especially in the, in the United States, uh, the two main areas of concern for families is medical or healthcare and off and obviously the financial piece, that's a, a really big thing that we need to plan for. As I remember when Ainsley was a baby, a woman told me, you need to plan for her whole life. And I hadn't really thought of it at that time, you know, not just for while I'm here, but for Ainsley's entire life. So that is something really important to also to think about. And number five, and I have heard this before, but if you're able, you know, if you think your child would understand or benefit from it, bring your child to their IEP. You know, our kids, they deserve to have a say and should have a say in their lives. And, you know, it's their life to live. So they should have a say on what that's going to look like. You know, person-centered planning. What is meaningful to your child? You know, it may not be what we want, but what's meaningful for them. And I know Megan and Patrick talked about lots of different uh, scenarios that they had that with other kids where they were able to find things that were meaningful for them to do. And, you know, are you going to number six, do like a day program or self-direction, you know, think outside the box. And I think as parents, you know, sometimes that can be really challenging, it can be hard, you know, because it's, it's different. But I think for the benefit of our kids, it's really beneficial to, to try to do that is to think outside the box. What, what, are, what do our kids like to do? What brings them joy? What is meaningful to them. So find Patrick and Megan, you can find them on their website at postsecondarytransition.com. Or if you want to go and look at all their uh, podcast episodes, they have their own podcast website at p2, the number two, 
www.thelifeguidebook.com. Lots of great info there, you know, and also if you're curious about something or you have questions, please contact them. I'm sure they'd be more than happy to help guide you regardless of where you live. So thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And like I say every episode, I would really love to hear from you. I would love to know how you like the episodes, if there's anything you would love to hear. You know, drop me a line, let me know. You can find me at t21mom.com and you can leave me a little message there. Or if you're so inclined, you can even leave me a voicemail. So keep on loving on your rocking kiddos and I'll see you next time.